Alright everyone, welcome back to the Royville Movie House. We've just stepped out of the theater, all my popcorn is gone, so it's time to review our latest movie. Yes, we watched High Noon from 1952. It was directed by Fred Zinneman, written by, well the screenplay was written by Carl Foreman, and it's based on the magazine story called The Tin Star by John W. Cunningham. Okay, the cast is, is huge. Yeah. Who's who of a bunch of people in movies that I've seen throughout my life. So if you don't like to hear me talk in large chunks, just fast forward about oh, 30 seconds because it might take me a bit. All right, so we start with Gary Cooper playing Marshall Will Kane, Thomas Mitchell playing Mayor Jonas Henderson, Lloyd Bridges, playing Deputy Marshal Harvey Pell. Katie Eduardo, playing Helen Ramirez. Grace Kelly, playing Amy Fowler-Kane. Otto Kruger, playing Judge Percy Metric. Lon Chaney Jr., playing Martin Howe. Harry Morgan, playing Sam Fuller. Ian McDonald, playing Frank Miller. Morgan Farley playing Dr. Mahan, the minister. And, oh, there's more. Harry Shannon playing Cooper. Lee Van Cleef playing Jack Colby. Robert J. Wilkie playing Jim Pierce. Sheb Woolley playing Ben Miller. And Lee Acker playing a boy. Uh, the boy is somebody who comes and basically makes the marshal jump because they're playing shootout. So That's why got, I included it. So we've got people from various movies. We've got people in this movie from It's a Wonderful Life. We've got people from M.A.S.H. We've got people from other westerns, uh, most notably one of my favorites, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. So, yeah, it is a literal who's who. And even... Uh, a person on some of our worst movie list. Lon Chaney Jr., yeah. He played he played somebody who was supposed to be older than Gary Cooper, but he's actually five years younger than Gary Cooper. But he actually, I kind of like him. He's, uh, he's a pretty talented actor. So, yeah. So, he, there's that. So, the synopsis is what I'm going to just... It's a pretty simple movie. Yeah, the plot is is very straightforward here. So IMDb pretty much sums it up pretty well, so I'll just read that. So the synopsis according to IMDb is, A town marshal, despite the disagreements of his newlywed bride and the townspeople around him, must face a gang of deadly killers alone at high noon when the gang leader, an outlaw he sent up years ago, arrives on the noon train. And this movie is about an hour and a half long. There's a little bit in the beginning, and then it's almost like it's real time. Yeah, it, it starts at 10.35 in the morning and ends just a little bit after noon. High noon. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, there are, before we get into it too much, there's a lot to unpack kind of behind the scenes that I kind of want to touch on. So, some interesting stuff. 
just two quick uh, tidbits. And then there's kind of a, yeah, anyway. So there, this movie is one of the first movies that uses a theme song that was written for the movie to be used in the plot uh, during the scoring with actual lyrics. It, in fact, is the first movie to win an Oscar for original song when the movie was not a musical. So this song in this movie is called Do Not Forsake Me, My Darling. And it's a bit of music that uh, the lyrics are told from the perspective of the marshal begging his wife not to leave town and not to abandon him. So it was written by the, the person who wrote the score. But the, the important and interesting fact is that it's sang by a man named Tex Ritter who was John Ritter's father. Oh. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, also, as a side note, Gary Cooper and Grace Kelly had an affair lasting the duration of the filming. Really? How do you feel about that, Steve? I'm sorry, but when they were getting married in the beginning of the film, I was like, why is she getting, why is she standing by her grandfather? Isn't she getting married? He's almost literally twice her age. Yeah, it, that that is crazy because through this whole movie, she's this young, blonde, beautiful Quaker woman, and he's the grizzled kind of older, not washed up sheriff of the town, marshal of the town, but they kind of portray him a little bit as as kind of he's had his years, so to speak. And I guess in the West it was a little different, but yeah, I, I could not get into that relationship. <laughs> I could not see that relationship painting out. So they were nominated for seven Oscars. They got four wins. They won for Best Actor in Gary Cooper. Uh, film Editing the original song, and the best music and scoring. They were also nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Writing. And actually, it's even more than 50 years later, actually, more than 60 years later, it's still considered a really big upset that the greatest Cecil B. DeMille movie called The Greatest Show ever or something to that effect. Great show ever told or something like that. Um, I don't know. I haven't seen it. It won because in 1951 America was in the middle of the Red Scare. And Cecil B. Cecil B. DeMille, see I can't even say his name, was a really big supporter of Joe McCarthy. Yeah. And it was kind of the Academy's way of saying, see, we're good, we're good. Politics. Interesting, though, that that was a part of it. But Oh, it's a big part of this. But let's talk about the movie first, and then we'll circle back. Okay. Um, it's a big part of this specific movie. Um, so, we can start... Um, the plot, like I said, is very simple. It's literally Marshall Kane trying to drum up a posse because a vicious killer is coming back into town. They want to drive him away. 
and they and he knows that he's just gonna start doing the same stuff that he was doing before he got put away, which is terrorizing the town. His boys, his men, uh, the bad guys' men, uh, John Miller, Frank Miller, Frank Miller. Sorry, I should totally not have forgotten that because every time they said his name, I thought of Batman. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, his Frank Miller's men were outside of town at the train depot pretty much from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. And so there was kind of this thing where they were waiting for the train. There were scenes where they were asking when the train's going to be there. There were scenes when they were talking about what was going to happen when the train got there. There were scenes of them drinking and waiting for the train. I, yeah, okay. Hey, <laughs> it was very well established that Frank Miller was a coming on the noon train. And the noon train was on time. That was a very well established fact from minute one. Pretty much. Well, maybe not minute one. Probably about minute three. Because we had about three minutes of credits while they were riding in town. Um, it is a black and white movie. Filmed on what seemed like a really hot day. It was kind of a pressure cooker kind of movie. Um, really hot day. Um, I wondered as I was watching the movie if they had a set built for this movie or they were just using a set because the set seemed pretty extensive. The town was pretty extensive. It was, and I'm not sure. And I'm not sure. I mean, uh, some of the sets, uh, I had visited uh, a movie studio, Old Tucson is what it's called, just outside of Tucson, Arizona, where a lot of... Uh, a lot of classic westerns were filmed. I don't know if High Noon's one of them, but they have a whole town built. Mm. Granted, it's for tourist stuff, but I mean, it was a set for at least one or two movies. They just changed the signs and stuff to make it look original. Mm. But, um, but anyway, that's neither. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if this was, maybe they found a, a town that they just filmed in. However, that would be really tough because there's like literally no one on the street during like three quarters of the movie. And it was very clearly a Western town. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there's ghost towns and stuff. Mm, true, you know. true. Anyway, I have no idea about the set. I'll have to look that up. Um, anyway, so the marshal, so the opening scene is the outlaws riding in. And then it bleeds right into the marshal getting married to Amy. And then he finds out that Frank Miller's coming to town and he was supposed to, she's a Quaker woman, they're pacifists, so he was giving up his marshal job to go run a store with her in some other town. And they were getting ready to leave town on the noon train. Oh, wait, no, she was going to go on the noon train. They were riding out of town on a carriage. Yeah, once he said that he basically couldn't leave and he had to take care of this because when Frank Miller got to town, the town would be in dire straits. You come to see that the marshal was very good for the town. There were even a number of people that said there was now 
uh, kids and it, the, the town was safe for women and children now because of the marshal. Um, and so the marshal felt like it was his deal. He had to stay. He had to take care of Frank Miller and his gang. And his new wife basically said, if you stay, I can't be with you and I'm going to leave. Well, I can't stay with you. Right. I, don't, I mean, I don't think she was like, I think it was a case of if you live, come meet me, but I can't stay here. Oh, I, I really wasn't getting that. I, I thought it was pretty, it was a pretty final statement from her. But then again, I, I could be totally wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm fine if I am in that, but it seemed to me kind of like if you do this, maybe you're not the man that I was marrying. I, I'm not sure. But, oh. go, but yeah. Oh, and that might be too. Anyway, so she's waiting for the train for an hour, pretty much. Okay, she buys her ticket to to head out of town. Um, and the marshal starts trying to round up his posse. The same posse that brought Frank in and sent him up. Sent him up. <laughs> he um, is a murderer and a thief and evidently drunk and disorderlies and, you know, the usual for uh, Western outlaws. And none of his posse is coming through for him. They all hide or tell him no. The only one who volunteers ends up backing down because no one else is there. It's just going to be him and Marshall Kane facing down four men. Which, that was actually a pretty good scene. I mean, you kind of felt for both of them, both his friend that volunteered and uh, the Marshall. So, and then a boy of 14 volunteers. Because he, he ain't out. scared. He's pretty good with a pistol. Um, The whole time he's been, his deputy is a young man, played by Lloyd Bridges, which is a weird thing to say in connection, young man in connection with Lloyd Bridges, but this is the 50s. So he was young. Um who hadn't matured enough to be able to become a marshal, and he resented Marshal King for that. And so he quit. But in the process of the day, in the process of this hour and a half, as he's seeing that nobody's stepping up to help the marshal, he tries to talk Kane into leaving town. They get into a fist fight because the deputy tries to knock him out to put him on the horse and basically make him leave town. Uh, in order to basically save his life and his mind. Um, so lots of this stuff is happening. As the townspeople are hiding, the, the people that, that he thought were his friends weren't supporting him. He, um, it was, uh, it was a really well done movie, but it was a really hard movie to watch because it was kind of sad. It was sad, and I think because of that, there really this movie there are two fight scenes. Mm -hmm. There's the fight scene between the marshal and his erstwhile deputy, and then there's the fight scene at the end. Mm -hmm. All of the other parts of the movie are just kind of leading up to this. So it's just kind of a 
almost an hour in the life of this marshal as he's waiting for Frank Miller to get to town. And so kind of for me, it was kind of, I mean, there were some good scenes in it, but for me, it was kind of slow. I really liked it because it's not a cartoony Western. It's not a gunfight for 45 minutes when the, the gunfight itself lasted, what, 30 seconds? <laughs> she says that like that's a bad thing. Anyway, <laughs> we'll not even get into that. But what I did like about the movie is that it really built that tension up, built Frank Miller up, built the posse up, and really painted a stark picture about how, how quickly even things can turn. Uh, I don't know how long Frank was gone. I can't remember. I'm sure they said it in the movie. Um, it was a couple of years as far as I know. It might have been a little bit more than that. Yeah. And so the townspeople kind of went into an, an apathetic sort of stupor kind of, not stupor, that's not the right word, like a holding pattern. Like, this isn't going to happen to us again. Well, how bad could it be? He's going to be bringing, you know, the bars were always hopping when he was in town, when he and his boys were in town. We had money coming in, and everybody's forgetting about the fact that it wasn't a good place to raise their family. It wasn't a good place to have their wives. The women weren't safe walking by themselves on the street because it was lawless. So I enjoyed the whole build-up and the way it was constructed. Um, one of the things that really I enjoyed, one of my favorite scenes was the scene where he goes to talk to the former, the former marshal. And he was like, I would go with you, but I, you'd be worried about me. I can't shoot a gun anymore. Yeah, I thought that that was also a good scene. Uh, the former marshal had served his time. Um, it wasn't that he... It kind of made me think that he didn't want to go, but then again, he he wanted to go. Um, basically, you know, he served his time. It's a lonely life being the marshal. Uh, I would go if I could, but I would basically just be a detriment to you. Um, and then... what What is... Cooper's character's name? Kane. Marshall Kane, William right. Kane. William Kane, that's right. Um, and so and so Marshall Kane leaves without him. So that that definitely was an interesting kind of here is you, Marshall Kane, in the future. Yeah. He talked about his arthritis in his hands and, and just yeah, it mm -hmm. was a it was a really well done scene. The other scene that I I want to say enjoyed, but that's not exactly the word for it. Was the the church meeting when he goes into the church meeting, uh, yeah. and it devolves into like political debate, yeah, over whether they should stand up to Frank Miller with him or not. And then that was actually a couple scenes. That was basically the townsfolk for the rest of the movie, pretty much. But I mean, it was like there were some that he was just like, look. Uh, he comes in, he's like, I'm sorry to interrupt, but preacher, I need your help. I know I'm not a church-going man, and maybe that's wrong. And the reason I didn't get married here is because I married a Quaker. And the, the preacher was like, all right, you're right, you're right, go ahead. 
And so he turned around and he begged for help from the townspeople. And like five people stood up and was like, all right, let's go. And then the mayor stood up and other people, and they debated whether anyone should go. It was such a weird and surreal. So why didn't those people that said we should go help him just go help him? <laughs> I, I know, but it was. Yeah, it was it was weird. It was just kind of like they didn't know what to, to me. It was like they didn't know what to do with the townsfolk. And so they just stayed in the church crabbing about everything the rest of the movie. I don't think that's the case. I think that that was a statement on how Americans actually try to move forward in their lives. Not individual Americans. Really? You think it was that deep? Yeah, I, I certainly do. Okay. Um, I'm not a deep person, so... John Wayne thought it was that deep. Oh, did he? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, This is why we're circling back to it at this point. Um, This movie is an allegory for the blacklisting that took place in Hollywood at this time. The screenplay writer Carl Foreman was blacklisted because he was a former member of the American Communist Party. And John Wayne in 1971, as late as 1971, 20 years later, is still proud of the fact that he drove this man out of Hollywood and made sure he could never work again. And hated High Noon because it was very obviously a statement to a statement on the failure of many in Hollywood to stand up to the House on American Affairs Committee. At the end, Gary Cooper, the only one who stood up to the bad guy. He and his wife, the only two people who stood up to the bad guy, dropped his marshal's badge and went away. And left all the townsfolk who he grew up with, who friends for years, left them all behind without even a second glance. Hmm. The whole movie is a pretty clever allegory for that or any kind of witch hunt of some sort where somebody tries to stand up for what's right and the majority's like, you know what, not going to do it, too much risk. Huh. Interesting. I did not know that at all. And that's why that scene was in there. It was actually a dig at Congress and government and the standstill of... The way that even people who tried to do what was right, they were squashed. They were talked down. They were talked over. They were talked down. They were shouted down. Well, basically, that's why I wanted to circle back to that pretty much at that point. Um, however, the last scene is the gunfight. And it's actually a pretty cool gunfight. I, uh, and Gary Cooper has huge hands. Um... <laughs> I just made a comment that his pistol looked very small in his hands, almost like it was a toy pistol. Yeah, I mean, a six-shooter isn't big, but yeah, once he pointed that out, that was all I could see. <laughs> um, but he cleverly, I mean, and actually, for a movie, relatively realistically, manages to survive long enough to take them all down. I mean... A lot of Westerns of this time period, they were a little bit unrealistic about the good guys and the bad guys and how, who wins and how. Mm -hmm. This good guy had to, like, he got shot. Well, he sure did. 
but I think the idea was he got shot <laughs> in the well, arm. Well, there was there was supposed like some blood around his shirt, so I mean, he got shot, and he's still trying to trying to win the day. Um, his Quaker wife actually during the fight comes back because um, a friend of Marshall Kane, uh, Mrs. Ramirez tells her that if Kane was her her was her man, he ne- she'd never leave and she starts thinking on it and runs away from the train and the train pulls off, but she goes to the marshal's office and obviously Kane's not there because Frank's in town. Uh and she's in the marshal's office and sees one of Kane's men sneaking up to take him out and she takes him out. But alas we have the damsel in distress moment where Frank Miller grabs her and uses her as a... After she shoots one of his possums. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. I- I'm not saying she's a complete hope- <laughs> complete helpless damsel in distress. I'm just saying it happened. She came back. He uses her as a hostage to get him to come out so that he can, you know, shoot him in the street. But actually, Amy... Amy fought back as soon as he let go. She clawed at his face or something. He she punched him or slapped him or she, something. Yeah, she did something to get away from him. And Kane shot him, and the Miller gang was was uh, was taken out. And Marshall Kane dropped his badge, and they rode off together to go run a store because she's still a Quaker, but her husband was in danger. So that's pretty much all I have to say about her new. Yeah, yeah. And aside from the fact that I mean, I I knew I knew that John Wayne was problematic. I don't know how else to say it. He comes from a different time period. Came rest in peace. Came from a different time period and a different mindset. But I didn't actually realize that he campaigned and really worked to blacklist people who were either suspected of or proven to be communists during um during this time so that was that was interesting for me to learn um also interesting for me to learn is that lloyd bridges got the job because gary cooper pulled him in he was what they call gray listed because he was on a watch list Hmm. interesting yeah i mean it's Kind of makes me realize a little bit more why the movie's on the top list. Yeah, it was a pretty clever allegory. And, which is, it does its job. An allegory doesn't have to be ham-fisted. The only ham-fisted scene in the whole thing is the the church, the meeting scene. Mm -hmm. Like, that's pretty ham-fisted. That was pretty obvious, kind of what they were getting at. Um, But I thought it was really... Gary Cooper didn't wear any makeup during the during the show because they thought the lines on his face would show his worry more. Oh, well, and shows that he's a heck of a lot older than his wife. <laughs> I was like, man, he looks really, really old. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, that's, I really enjoyed, I do, but I really enjoy most Westerns. I mean, I'm a big fan of Westerns. I'm a big fan of the genre. I just, I guess... The more I watch these movies, the more I'm a fan of more modern 
modern style movies, but I mean, I really enjoy, I just watched it um, a little while back, Once Upon a Time in the West. It is a more modern film than High Noon, um, but it does have a lot of that kind of story building aspect, and I really enjoyed that. I just maybe thought the premise is very simple, and for a Western, you really don't need that simple of a premise. One of my favorite movies, I think I've not even referred to it before, Open Range, very simple premise. Um, but I just felt, even after discussing the film and realizing that there were some scenes that I really enjoyed, I really thought uh, had some depth with, like we said, the uh, a prime example is Marshall Kane with the old Marshall. Um, it was just kind of a little slow for me. I did, there were points where I was really kind of seeing the worry on Marshall Kane's face and kind of almost stepping into his shoes. You know, this train's coming at noon. It's, it's kind of a, and throughout the movie, they're always referring to the clock. He's looking at the clock. Other people are looking at the clock. And it's this tick, tick, tick to basically um, his Armageddon, his, you know, his end, possibly. So that really kind of drew me into the movie. One of my favorite movies of all time. Probably not. Um, but I do understand why it's on the list. And it was a good film. I'm glad I saw it. Um, actually, I I haven't seen a whole lot of Gary Cooper. Um, I think he did a great job. I think that him being one of their Oscar wins was actually probably... I, I don't know what the competition was, but I mean, it was a well-earned Oscar. It was, well, a good, honestly, it was a good this performance. Is, this is the only movie I've ever seen Gary Cooper in. It was a good performance, though. I mean, objectively speaking, you could definitely see his worry. And, I mean, it wasn't over the top or anything. It was just a guy trying to get someone to help him. And, no, you know, it was... um, I thought that the direction was really good. Um, And, like I said, I I really did enjoy the movie itself. Um, I have been surprised... um, how many classic westerns Steve hasn't seen. So <laughs> Yeah, it's one of my favorite genres and I've seen a bunch of western films, but I think anything past the 70s on back is is very few and far between. Yeah, I, the spaghetti westerns I think is where he picks stuff up at and then moving forward. But there are just some, some things like High Noon does have some of the tropes, like a lot of the Western movies have that whole ticking clock because High Noon is a thing. Like you call someone out at High Noon, you you know, <laughs> like it, it is a ticking clock. Um, they also have the the pretty much straightforward, not complicated good man in almost every, I mean, almost every, the Spaghetti Westerns aside, because there's almost never a straightforward good man in any Spaghetti Western. They're more complicated than that. But uh, these were pretty much black and white, good guy, bad guy characters. With the townspeople actually, weirdly enough, not really fitting into the genre in Shades of Grey. Mostly cowards. 
Some of them just didn't like Kane, but mostly just cowards. But, yeah, true. But anyway, so I give it a thumbs up. I think it belongs on the list. Steve, evidently, since you, you understand it's on the list. Yeah, I mean, I would give it a thumbs up, but I probably, unless Ellen wanted to watch it again, I probably wouldn't choose it to watch again. That's fair enough. Um, so that's that. Uh, next week, we have a bad movie. And it is The Fat Spy from 1966 with Phyllis Diller. Yay! It's a comedy, at least. True, but a lot of the movies that we saw were comedies. Well, this one was supposed to be on purpose, so it won't be funny at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, well, that was our review of High Noon. Uh, looks like they are starting to light the lamps on the streets of Royville. So until next time, if you enjoyed this review, please comment, subscribe. Tell us what you think. If you liked the movie, if you didn't like the movie, be nice. Other than that, uh, we will see you next time. Have a good night. Bye.